So I called several people who I respect uh, and said, what should I do? And to my surprise, two of them said the same thing, which was, oh, do reacting to the past. It might really help. And that September, I started playing the game with my students, and I was absolutely blown away by the difference in my experience. And I was really new to being a game master. I, I made a lot of mistakes, but it was okay because the game had its own energy and its own direction that really didn't require me to be that good at it. And my students loved it. Hi, and welcome back to Reacting to the Podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And after a long, mostly COVID-inspired hiatus, I'm thrilled to be back. Season three uh, is a short season uh, composed of interviews with winners of Reacting's Brilliancy Prize. The Brilliancy Prize for Reacting is modeled on a prize awarded at chess tournaments, which was meant to reward players who showed a kind of creativity or inspiration or flair uh, rather than people uh, with uh, great memory skills or the ability to implement tactics that other people had already discovered. And for reacting, what that means is that the Brilliancy Award um, is given to designers who create game mechanics or game elements or, or other kinds of mechanisms in a game that inspire students who are playing the game to a kind of creativity and inventiveness and inspiration and inspire the faculty who run the games and the administrators who support them to see the value of inspiration and creativity and education. Uh, it is a relatively recent award. It was awarded at first in 2019. And so there are three winners, although I use that word carefully because twice the winners were a pair of authors. And we'll interview each set in a week uh, their podcast featuring Terry Nelson will drop. And then a week after that, we will drop an episode with Kyle Lincoln, who is this year's winner, along with John Giebfried. We were unable to have John join us. He's in the process of moving to Vienna. But those are in the future. Today, I'm thrilled to interview Pamela Walker and Martha Attridge Bufton. And so without any more introduction, here's the show. Martha and Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I always start uh, by giving uh, the listeners a chance to get to know people a little bit better. So, so I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and, and say a little bit about how you got to be an academic, say a little bit about what you specialize in, and, and, uh, and, and just some sense of who you are as a person. So Pamela, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Martha. So Pamela, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an historian of modern Britain, particularly 19th, 20th centuries, and I'm particularly interested in women's history broadly across time and place. And I did my PhD at Rutgers University in women's history and modern European history. And at Carleton University, where I've been for many years, I teach in those areas. And I write about religion and the history of Christianity. And I'm also very interested in the history of race. And I've been working on a project for several years about the history of missionaries and ideas about gender and race, particularly the history of whiteness um, among British uh, missionaries in a number of different contexts. And um, I teach here at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, which is the capital of Canada. And what about you, Martha? Well, I am an academic librarian at Carleton, 
and um, in my role as the interdisciplinary studies librarian, I work with students and faculty in a number of programs, including women and gender studies, indigenous and Canadian studies, as well as digital humanities. Uh, and I'm really fortunate because Carleton um, provides its academic librarians with the opportunity to teach and pursue research. And uh, in my case, I am an oral historian by training, and I study uh, women and work. And what could I tell you about myself that you might not expect? Um, I play, well, play, that's um, in quotes, the auto harp, and I have four ukuleles. And I spent wow. five and a half years working in the high Arctic. So at that point, about um, 100 miles south of the magnetic North Pole, um, as a radio operator bus driver. Wow. And then, okay, so I'll add my little personal detail, which is I'm a very keen dancer. I'm, I'm started out as a tap dancer and rhythmic rhythm tap. Um, and I also am a swing dancer and Martha and I can sometimes be found on a Friday night when there's not a pandemic, uh, swing dancing with a very active, very large circle of swing dancers in Ottawa. That's amazing. Martha, do you still like have a coat on as kind of a legacy? Are you still recovering from being cold all the time? <laughs> so I still have the orange coveralls that I wore when I was the bus driver. And, um, I, ha I have to say it was a, it's a pretty unique experience uh, to be that far north. And uh, I did mm. freeze my nose. I got frostbite at minus 70. So the legacy is that I can always tell when it's getting cold because my nose tingles. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pamela, how did you get interested in reacting? Well, it started because I had been teaching a, what well, you Americans would call freshmen, we say first year seminar, mm -hmm. which is meant to introduce students to a discipline, in my case, history, but also to ensure that they emerge from the end of their freshman year with a high level of competency in research and writing and how to think analytically and all of those kind of interdisciplinary skills. And I had been very successful with my seminar and I had actually won a big teaching award for it. And then over a two-year period, it just descended into complete and utter misery. And I was teaching this seminar and I felt like I'm teaching in a wax museum. I could not get my students to move, to talk, to engage. They would just sit there inert, staring at me. And it was so awful that when I was walking to class, I would actually start to feel nauseous because I was thinking I have an hour and a half to get through and every minute of this will be misery. And in the midst of all of this, I thought, okay, well, whatever I'm doing doesn't work. I have no idea why it used to work and it doesn't, but clearly it's not working. And the, the year previous had been mixed. And then this particular year was just a nightmare. So I called several people who I respect uh, and said, what should I do? And to my surprise, two of them said the same thing, which was, oh, do reacting to the past. It might really help. And one of those people was Gretchen Galbraith, who, of mm. course, is um, very involved and has been for years in reacting. So I initially, when I heard about it, thought it sounded a bit idiotic. 
<laughs> and embarrassing. And I thought like, what? You're playing games? Are you serious? This is a university. And yet, because I respect Gretchen so much, and I thought, well, if Gretchen's doing it, it must actually be something worth my attention. So she said, well, why don't you come in June to the Institute and give it a try? And so really, without knowing that much about it, I committed to doing it. I put it in my course syllabus, and I just said, okay, that's it. I'm going to try this. It can't be worse than what I'm doing. And I played Greenwich Village 1913, which was clear to me that was the game that was in the area I was most interested in because it has a big women's history component. I played it. I went to a bunch of workshops. I read up on it, joined the Facebook lounge. And that September, I started playing the game with my students. And I was absolutely blown away by the difference in my experience. And I was really new to being a game master. I, I made a lot of mistakes. But it was okay because the game had its own energy and its own direction that really didn't require me to be that good at it. And my students loved it. And the moment when I was like, whoa, something really changed here. We were playing and it was the end of class time. And I could, I knew there was a group of people in the hallway who wanted the room for their own class. And I was saying to my students, no, no, you have to leave. You have to leave. Come on, out, out, out. And I couldn't get them to leave. And I made them go in the hallway and they kept arguing. And it was, you know, suffrage and labor were arguing so energetically and they were arguing and laughing. And I thought, oh, wow. And realizing they weren't just, you know, arguing to be silly. They actually were right in the sources. They had read the text. They were really doing what I wanted them to do. And they were happy. So I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. This is what I'm doing. So from there, I just never looked back. So that's a great story. Uh, although, perhaps a little bit of a warning to people who are thinking about entering teaching as a profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and I think one of the things also that was just interesting about my experience of that, of not trusting that this was a serious academic pursuit, mm -hmm. uh, which I have had many people say that to me. And I was at a women's history conference a couple of years ago and I was, I'm on the, it's a group that I'm on the, uh, I was on a, important committee in terms of the planning mm -hmm. of the, their conference. And I'm sitting at a table for dinner with this group of academics, all, um, you know, interesting people doing interesting work. And they kind of were asking me, oh, you know, tell us about you. And I started talking about reacting and the looks on their faces. I mean, they were clearly appalled. And this one woman kept saying, that's highly problematic. Oh, mm -hmm. that sounds really problematic. And I, and there was an actual it escalated almost so I could feel hostility. And then I realized what they were thinking about was civil war reenactment. And I was like, uh, no, 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 it's not that, it's not that. But their immediate response is this is minstrel. It's civil war reenactment. This is something appalling. What, who are you is sitting at our table doing this awful thing? So it, I realized I still am not very good at explaining it. And my reaction of thinking, oh, you can't be serious, is I think common to many people who you know, don't imagine playing games would be the best way to allow students to think about complex topics. No, I think that's right. Um, and I think your story is, it's a great story and you tell it well. It's not an unusual story for how people mm -hmm. are getting to reacting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Martha, you're more unusual, I think. I don't know many librarians who are involved in reacting. So how did you get interested in it? through Pamela, 
I remember, I mean, we've been colleagues for a while and um, I remember her sharing her enthusiasm for reacting early on. I mean, really in the first year that she started teaching this way. And at the time I was Carlton's first teaching and learning librarian. So it was easy for me to be involved because part of my mandate was to build relationships with teaching faculty and to um, uh, keep up with current trends. And it just seemed to me that reacting is, was a really interesting, intriguing uh, approach to teaching history. And it sounded fun. Uh, so there was that piece And also, Martha, you remember, I came to you, there was also, because I came to you with my problem, which, you know, we eventually solved, which was in Greenwich Village, the students are instructed to, to do research in various ways. Mm-hmm. But I realized that my students had no idea what that meant. Right. So I was saying to Martha, hmm, I don't know what, I, I don't know how to address that in the context of this class. And Martha said, oh, well. I'll get involved. And then it just grew from there. So she offered to, to basically help me because I was a bit stuck. Right. And I, I think that that's a so lovely... That maybe brings us... No, go ahead, sir. I was just going to say it's a lovely segue um, into my yeah. other sort of interest, which is I believe there's always room for librarians and faculty to collaborate when it comes to teaching students how to find the sources they need to be successful academically. So really more broadly, there's always an opportunity for faculty and librarians to help students uh, reflect upon and nurture their own relationship with information. And librarians and faculty, I think, have a long-standing sort of tradition of collaborating, but not necessarily in this way. No, I think that's right. Although I have to confess right now, I'm carefully avoiding the interlibrary loan librarian who um, who seems to believe that I kept a library book longer than I should have. Um, I'm sure that's wrong, but I can't prove it. So I'll just <laughs> avoid her for a little bit longer. Um, and that's so, so, so Martha, you're leading up to the, the main topic for today. Um, and the, the, the reason why the two of you um, were awarded the Brilliancy Prize. So, so, and I guess I'll just ask Martha to start and then you and Pamela can talk about this. Introduce me to, to Maud Malone. So I had actually met ah. Maud Malone when I was writing my master's thesis on white collar unions at Carleton. So the certification of the two large white collar uh, unions on campus. Um, libra- librarians were And I just involved. have to jump in here. Yeah. Martha, you have to let me jump in and say this This was a thesis Martha wrote um, in the history department at Carleton. It was her master's thesis, which won a number of prizes, um, including the, a major prize from the Canadian Historical Association, and parts of it have been published. So it was a really spectacular thesis. I am very lucky that Pamela is my public relations agent. <laughs> um, so... Librarians were really involved in the effort on campus to unionize. And for me to understand the context of their willingness to do this, to be involved in in creating these unions, I had to look at the history of labor unions in, 
in North America. And once you start to do that work, Maud is just there. She had been instrumental in the founding of the Library Employees Union of Greater New York in the early 20th century. And in fact, Catherine Shanley, who I think is now a retired Columbia librarian, uh, has written the most detailed history of Maud's involvement in the development of that union. And as it turns out, Maud was also a suffragette. She had, it seems, tremendous energy and could really multitask. Um, and of course, Pamela teaches Mary Jane Tracy's Greenwich Village 1913. And coming out of our initial conversation about how I could help her, it just seemed that Maud was a natural fit with that cast of characters. She lived in New York at the time. She was involved in both suffrage and labor movements. And she was um, extraordinarily opinionated and worked in a library. So I thought, how great, you know, we can introduce her as a historical character who aligns perfectly with the big ideas being explored in Greenwich Village 1913. And her role can be used to help the factions find the information that they need to win the game. And of course, ultimately, individual students to do the other work that they're required to do in the course. Um, so I was part of Pamela's teaching um, in 2018, both a first and second year course. And I've attended two of the annual institutes as well as the game development conference, uh, which I thought was all really important for me to do in order to really understand reacting and be supportive to Pamela and her students. Um, since then, we've chatted with Mary Jane, and I'm now writing uh, a proper role sheet for Maud. Um, that first year, I mm -hmm. attended the game playing sessions and supported students in what I think are pretty traditional ways that librarians support students. So I have an online subject guide. Uh, I've done in-class demonstrations on how to find info about characters in the New York Times Digital Archives, which was Pamela's idea, but it worked really well when Maud was up there searching for herself, her own obituary. And, uh, and I also do one-to-one -one consultations where students self-select to come and see me. And I think those things work well, but I, I, I do believe that the next step is actually to develop a mandatory module in which students are formally assessed on their information seeking because, um, mm. you know, the, the thing about, let's say, an in-class demonstration is for everybody who's there, it's clear they're expected to participate. So it's more mandatory, less voluntary. But you both know as seasoned teachers, especially these days when students can be going to school full time and also maybe working almost full time, that um, that which they don't need to do, they just self-select out of because they literally don't have time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we, uh, to make this really effective and especially sort of contribute to long-term learning, the next step is to make whatever the librarian is teaching really embedded in the curriculum to the point that, that students are graded for it because then they'll really engage with it. So and we have this idea of, of creating assignments. Yeah. No, go ahead, Pat. Yeah, we would create assignments where, yeah, that we're, we had this, we've been talking about creating an assignment where students would have several steps that they would follow in order to gather information on a given topic, industrial sabotage, or mm -hmm. John Reed's opinions on 
socialism or whatever it might be, given the character, and the librarian would actually walk them through some of the ways they could gather information and then would grade them on their success in actually doing it. Um, and that's something that Martha's been willing to do for the students in this class. And you know, when we did a little thing in class, though it was quite visible to me that the students were like, oh, like Maud Malone in full costume, I must add, with her fabulous mm-hmm. little hat and her sash that says votes for women on one side. And what does it say on the other side, Martha? Union? I, you know Something what? about the union? Yeah, I think it's uh, rights for workers. Rights for workers. Mm-hmm. So she's there physically manifesting all of this. And then we used the New York Times and had everybody look themselves up on the New York Times, which doesn't work for every character, Mm -hmm. but for many it does. And you could hear, you know, the pin drop and they're all like, oh, you know, here I am Googling my character. And oh, look, there Emma Goldman and Maud Malone had a series of very public debates in Greenwich Village in, I think, 1911. And Maud called herself the leader of the flying squad of suffragettes. And so the students all, you know, obviously they love that. But then you could see, the students seeing Emma Goldman could see what were the points of contention between her and Maud. And the debate is all listed, you know, discussed in the New York Times. So for the students, it's like, wow, like here's this whole other layer of learning that I can do to enrich my character. And it's right here in front of me. So and I th- um, it, it was really effective. And And then seeing like, oh, and here's this librarian, which for a lot of my students, the librarian is quite a unknown person like oh what does a librarian even do they have no idea most of them have attended high schools which probably had a librarian but not anyone they interacted with so it really made it possible for them to go and say to martha well i'm i don't really understand this or i'm confused by that how do i figure out the answers Mm -hmm. with a person who they actually already have some kind of relationship with or at least they recognize her and on her um, library page now is a picture of Martha dressed as Maud, so they can actually send emails to Maud herself, who will answer them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Pamela. So I wonder what it was. Oh. I, I just want to add a PS Go too, ahead. which is that we we give student. I mean, clearly, a, in the moment, students are are processing and thinking and reflecting on you know, on seeing the results from a website, you know, a database search and all of that kind of thing. But I also think it's important to give them formal opportunities to actually reflect on that experience as well, that that um, retrieving that emotional cognitive experience and having to articulate it is very much uh, an important part of the learning process and getting this sort of end and making them more attentive to how they actually find information and which strategies work best in certain contexts, right? So I am more and more suggesting to to the faculty that I work with, because Pamela's, you know, one of a number of faculty that I have, you know, very collaborative relationships with, that building in graded reflections is is critical to getting students to, to stop think and ultimately learn that library-based research mm. is a good thing. So Martha, what did it feel like to walk in in costume? Was that comfortable? Was that uncomfortable? Was there something in your background that made it comfortable? 
Well, I don't know. My family would probably say that I have a flair for the dramatic. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yet I have a sort of, it's, it, it was interesting because I felt excited. I felt a little bit um, nervous. I think that, I think most people who go on stage probably have a combination of at least those feelings. Um, it ultimately, it felt, it felt good, you know, because the students were, in, I think, intrigued. Um, and it actually, um, it helped me be more part of the game. I think there's a reason, a pedagogical reason, that Mary Jane mm -hmm. gives pips for costumes um, because mm -hmm. costumes mm -hmm. really, um, particularly if we're inhabiting somebody else's life and somebody else's lived experience, you know, costume is a way to, uh, I don't know if it's a, it's part of the liminal experience or not, um, because, you know, even though, um, is it Shakespeare who, you know, to whom we can attribute, you know, clothes make the man, um, or whether that's a misquote, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm in the process of watching, watching Upstart Crow, so I'm never sure which, <laughs> which of the codes quotes are actually from Shakespeare and which are kind of bending the truth a little bit. But um, I think that it it did help that transition into being Maud in the game. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, whatever it is, you know, about my background or my personality that allows me to sort of play that role, um, I was able to do that. Now, having said that, I, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I have other experience with, um, with role playing, and I'm actually uh, profoundly uncomfortable playing roles in front of other people in those other contexts because I feel very vulnerable and exposed. Even though I learn a lot by by role playing, so actually circling back, and I'm sort of doing a Virginia Woolf stream of consciousness thing here, but um, I think the costume actually made it easier to be less myself and more Maud. And I think that that was helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So then you've, you've done this and you're working on institutionalizing this possibility for Greenwich Village. How can, is there, have you thought a little bit about how a similar kind of role or task might be integrated into other reactive games? Yeah, we, we have talked about uh, this, and I think that it's very clear to me that the mod role can be a template for any librarian who wants, you know, any faculty librarian partnership that wants to um, pursue a, a more active role for the librarian in a reacting classroom. I think mod actually makes it easy for people to imagine this because there will be there can be librarians you know um in a particular community i mean real librarians or you could um in you know or you could create a composite character right um because mm -hmm. ultimately all of these games everything that happens these uh the action requires people to have information. They have to have it to begin with. They have to find new information. They have to constantly be seeking it. 
So there is always a role for somebody who can play that key role as not gatekeeper because, um, you know, literally and figuratively, I think we've moved away from that, or at least we have the illusion of moving away from that in, in the digital age. Um, but somebody who facilitates the finding and accessing of information, there's, you know, that I think is just an, an easy, a good fit for any of the games. Pamela, any other thoughts? Yeah, and I think that um, it, you know, it probably depends a great deal on what institution you're at and what kind of preparation students had prior to coming to their institution. But we're at a large uh, research university with a great variety of students. But some of my students, I realize, are really intimidated by the library, by the librarians, by the whole idea of what this idea of research would mean, that they, they really have very little context for it. So, of course, they go to Google because they know how to use that. And trying to get them to see the library as actually a repository of all this wonderful material that they can access and use and be far more effective. Um, the, the mod character is an opportunity for that to happen. And you could, you know, in Rwanda, I don't know, it could be a librarian working at the United mm -hmm. Nations, which mm -hmm. not all the characters, I guess, then would have opportunity to use, but you could have the person, you know, wearing different hats. I'm, you know, working here, working there. I don't know. You could sort of play around with how you want that to be. But I felt that just by seeing Martha actually being silly, which is part of Maud's thing, you know, she comes bursting into the room and saying, you know, I'm here, you know, and then argues with Emma Goldman or whatever. Um, it gives her this personality and, and makes her approachable and not like some kind of harsh, judgmental person who will find them wanting for their lack of skills, but is this person they actually know who is part of the game. So mm. some of the students approached Martha during the game to say, oh, could I make an appointment? Can I send you an email? And that made sense to me. I mean, I can see why that works better than here's this person who you've never met or heard of, and she's over there in this other building. You should go talk to her, which they're just not going to do. And this broke all of that and made her um, a, a person who they could approach. And also, as it turned out, we used her first at the very beginning of things while we were mm -hmm. still just doing game setup. Mm -hmm. So flying in in costume and um, making them laugh also modeled for them what you can do in a reacting game and that you mm -hmm. could put a costume on and not quite be yourself anymore and be, you know, whoever in the game who may say and do things that in your own world you wouldn't do or say, but in this context you can. And I and Pamela's hit on a, a couple of things in terms of information seeking behavior, I, I think that are really important to emphasize. So there's a great longitudinal study out of the iSchool at Washington State, um, which has been looking at undergraduates across the United States and all kinds of different institutions for a very long time. It's called Project Information Literacy. And one of their very early um, research reports um, finds substantive evidence to show that students use Google because it is familiar, meaning it's safe, meaning when they use it, they know they're going to find something. And, you know, lots and lots and lots of undergraduates come in in their first year and they're eager and they want to be successful, but they're also nervous or afraid or anxious. And 
quite normally, I think, because it's true for many of us, when you're in the midst of feeling anxious and you're already learning a lot of new stuff, you're not necessarily willing to try to learn one more new thing, particularly one new thing, one more new thing for which you're not graded on. And so, and that would be learning mm. how to use America history and life, for example. So they, when they're anxious, they default to the familiar because it's safe. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're unwilling to learn other stuff. It's just in that moment, other tools, it's just in that moment, it's like too much, right? And that's been really important for me to understand to be reminded that learning is essentially emotional, that I ha we have to be attentive to that, uh, and that we have to build that into our pedagogy and our, and our teaching strategies, because otherwise we're going to keep trying the same thing over and over again, and it's just not, students are not going to take us up on the offer to self-select to go to the library, because they don't have time and they don't, emotionally, they're not able to perhaps. Um, and, and that's really, that, that understanding of students' behavior is backed up by, you know, one of the most famous information-seeking models by a woman named uh, Carol Coulthau, who's now a professor emerita from Rutgers, which is the best time for librarians to actually be helpful is in that moment, the other sort of a really important emotional moment, which is that liminal space where we're in the process of learning something new. We're not sure what it is. We're not sure if we can learn it. We're not sure where we're going because that's an anxious moment too. Um, but if there can be somebody there to guide you through that process, um, then it can reduce the anxiety. You can find some material that you need and you gain your confidence. And then, you know, you're, you're feeling a lot better about kind of moving through um, the process of learning new stuff, right? New material. So I think that having Maud come in and as Pamela says, be approachable, demonstrate some stuff, normalize the experience, um, can really, um, be a stress reliever for students. It can reduce their anxiety and it can make mm -hmm. it easier for them to learn, you know, we're getting a lot, I don't know about you, Kelly, but we're getting a lot of um, information from quote unquote, the university um, senior management about being attentive to students' mental health during this period of COVID. And I honestly think that by collaborating with your librarian, that is faculty members, you are in fact putting a stress reducer in place for students that that's one of our big roles is to help them feel absolutely, absolutely. less anxious about finding information. Right. And, and just a little sort of aside that I think also explains a little bit about, you know, how Martha and I know each other and how we came to trust each other in a way that enabled us to do this. I first met Martha, um, I want to say 2006, somewhere around there, in a suicide prevention workshop that she was teaching mm -hmm. that was run through Bereaved Families of Ottawa. And um, as a faculty member, I had had experience with a student who was suicidal and decided that I needed to understand better what I was dealing with and how to be mm -hmm. effective in my very particular role as a professor. And so along with some other faculty, we did this workshop with Martha and another um, 
another volunteer from Bereaved Families Ottawa. So it was a really interesting way to meet somebody because here she was, you know, teaching us how to be more effective and dealing with emotional uh, trauma and something really horrendous, which is, uh, you know, dealing with someone who's suicidal. And sorry, my headphone just dropped off. Um, And it involved a certain amount of role playing, which Mm -hmm. was interesting that, you know, we're back to role playing. Um, from that early experience, but it was a very powerful workshop. It was, I mean, I have vivid, vivid memory of every little minute of what, you know, Martha said to me and what we did. And so we had already been on this kind of a complex journey together that she led us through. And I think it, you know, gave us as our foundation and as friends, um, you know, really unusual foundations. So um, that I think gave us a sense of, you know, how we both think about the emotional content of what's happening with students and with ourselves and how to be effective dealing with those issues. And I know so many of my students come into my first year classroom so anxious and feeling very uh, sure that they will fail, that they are not fit for this place, that it's beyond them, that it'll be too confusing. That And their high school teachers, for some reason, I do not understand constantly tell them apparently that professors are awful people who don't care about them and only care about their research and you're just going to be a number and no one's going to care about you and you need to toughen up because boy when you get to university it's really going to be hard so they come in with this expectation that I'm just an awful person who's going to treat them badly and then figuring out how to teach them when that's the expectation that they have um, you know it's not easy so Martha and I think on some of those things are really on the same page and realizing that some of the reasons my students don't do the things they should do that are maybe part of the assignment isn't because they can't, but they're actually really afraid and unsure Mm -hmm. and they don't even know who to ask. So creating Martha and as Maude in the game means, oh, no, I know who to ask her. There, I have her email address and I can go to the library and find her or I can... um, contact her on on my email account and maybe get some sense of where I'm going here. And then by actually doing it in the classroom, this, you know, various research things that we do in terms of learning more about your character, we've, they've seen it demonstrated. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, well, I could do that. Yeah, if I knew more about how to do this, I could definitely do more of this. And that would enable me to be better in my character and presumably better in everything else they do. So it was um, that was kind of our thinking as we started this. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like we, both of you have a. This, it sounds sorry, like Kelly. This can, I'll just can I? Yeah, I'll just add ahead. a PS around the um, the issue uh-huh. of immersive role playing. So we we just know there's a long uh, there's a great body of of literature and anecdotal experience about the effectiveness of role playing as a learning tool, that it's not comfortable, but it's extremely powerful, that 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 which you live, that you feel is something that stays with you. So clearly that's one of the, you know, that this is evidence of why reacting itself works and it's role playing in a range of, of context. So not so you know, video games, but um, lots and lots of teaching contexts as well. So I think it's important to remember that in a reacting class, there's there the having that being in a, a certain lived experience is happening at a number of different levels. Um, but because students are 
doing it, it's experiential, and I'm preaching to the choir here. That's why it, it has, it's so powerful as a teaching strategy. Hi, I'm Riley Doherty, an intern with Reacting. I wanted to remind you that we have a new website, reactingconsortium.org. Go there for links to earlier podcasts, other resources for instructors, or about upcoming events like the Summer Conference at the University of Colorado at Boulder or the Game Development Conference at Cabrini. You can also support Reacting by becoming a member of the Reacting Consortium. Just go to reactingconsortium.org and click on Join. Now, back to today's interview. So the two of you clearly have a, a wonderful relationship and a great partnership going. But I honestly don't know many librarians who are part of the reacting community. So so I guess the last or next to last question for the two of you is to say how how can reacting instructors reach out effectively to librarians and establish the kind of partnership that you all have. And, and, and I'll ask Martha to start with this from her side and then Pamela to pitch in from the faculty side. That's such uh, a great and complicated question. Um, I, think it's, I think it's clear that, you know, Pamela and I have a really good friendship and a very collegial professional relationship. And these kinds of relationships don't grow on trees. So some of, in our case, some of it is truly serendipitous. And Pamela's talked about the fact that we met um, when I was doing the, the Living Work Suicide Intervention program on campus. Uh, but then we met again when I was doing my MA in history. And, um, mm. and this time the roles were, were reversed, right? Because Pamela was teaching, co-teaching a course in women's history and I was the student. The thing about both the living works and the, the women's history course um, that they have in common is that, you know, it's about trust, right? So Pamela had to trust me to be a good teacher mm. and walk her through a challenging situation and, and vice versa when I was her student. And, you know, lots of people just don't cross paths in those particular ways. So the trust um, can actually take longer to build. But lia and liaison work is uh, built into the kind of librarianship that I do in, in many institutions. Uh, I, I'm working in a department that is in many ways still a very traditional reference department within academic libraries. So my job is about collection development, which is, I think, Kelly, where you often cross paths with your librarians. It's about, I need this mm -hmm. material for my teaching, or there's this gap in the collection, and the librarian is being reactive, but also proactive in terms of making sure that um, the holdings, you know, support what's being taught and researched on campus. But teaching is also a part of it, and so is the liaison work, which actually supports both teaching and collections, because liaison is really a sophisticated work for relationship building, you know, and I've spent, I'm now going into, uh, you know, my 13th year in this job and some of the really, some of the folks that I started working with when I first went into the department, all of 
that relationship building is, you know, is now really sort of bearing very rich fruit to follow up the metaphor, right? So, um, and and I think those relationships have flourished, not just because this is part of my job description, um, but but also because there are like-minded faculty. I mean, the best relationships I have are with the faculty who are pretty inclusive, who are who want to have good working relationships with their colleagues, whether that's within their own academic unit, their faculty, or the library. So I think that some of it is about that willingness to um, just to reach out and and use every resource that's available. Pamela, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that one of the little things that we did very early was when Gretchen and uh, Galbraith and Peter Anderson mm-hmm. came to Carleton to um, teach faculty about reacting, and they just did a one-day uh, version of the French Revolution, and I invited all the librarians to come. Mm-hmm. And certainly not all of them came, but several did. And I think that that really helped because when I was talking about what I was doing and saying to the history librarian, who's not Martha, but another person, she knew what I was talking about and was like, oh, how interesting, you know, sure, I'll help out. And yes, you know, have them come to see me as well and so on. So I think that was one thing that did have an impact. Um, And and yet, you know, I would say, yeah, our relationship and Martha's willingness to jump in on this is very much about the two of us and who Martha is as a person. And I'm, and it wouldn't be easy to find another Martha. Um, if it weren't Martha I were working with, I'm not sure who else in the library. You mm-hmm. might guess, Martha, who else might be willing to put on a crazy outfit and, um, you know, and do this. But I think thinking about maybe other ways that person could participate using some of the other things we're trying to do about even not in costume, but just uh, and maybe somebody's not willing to play a role. That's just not something they would do. But they could still do some of these same activities of coming into the class and being present in the room. And you could even do something on a small scale we had thought about. You could have like a little library desk in the corner, an old-fashioned mm-hmm. library, and have students walk up to the person and say, please help, I'm confused, as one might have done in you know 1965. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I think just inviting the librarians in and showing them and bringing them to, you know, if you were to have a workshop and asking them to come along, uh, I think does help. Yeah, and that's an extremely good point. I, the academic librarians I know who do the same kind of work, teaching is critical to what we do. And um, I, I've now got to the point in my life as an academic librarian where I think that a lot of what we do is foundational to student success, but I think the model that we use for teaching is um, is ineffective in terms of student learning. So by that I mean in terms of our collaborations with faculty and classrooms, typically if we are invited in, it's as a guest lecturer. So we're invited in to, sometimes it's only half an hour. Um, I'm now old enough and seasoned enough that I always negotiate for more time. Because what, we, what we're teaching people to do is cognitively quite sophisticated. Um, and you don't learn it in 30 minutes or 
120 minutes or three hours. Uh, so I think that fundamentally the model for teaching has to change. And Pamela and I are doing that through reacting. I know it's happening at other institutions. And I know there are places like Augustana College, which is part of the University of Alberta, where librarians have been embedded in curricula for a long time. They, they teach full courses, they grade, they assess. And that's a much better model for learning um, to really fundamentally shift your relationship with information than having a guest lecturer come in with whom, in fact, you don't actually have to engage. I mean, I'll, if I go into large lectures, especially those that are taught at night, I start to talk and half the kids in the room get up and leave. So, you know, I'm looking at that and thinking, you know, it's like Pamela making a, deciding that she needed to make a change in her teaching. Um, something's something's got to change. If we really believe that these research skills are foundational, then um, the way that we as librarians and faculty teach them has has got to shift. And in fact, there was a big research report coming out of four large Ontario universities, including York University, which is in Toronto. And the study had looked uh, had asked both faculty and students if they thought that students were graduating with the academic skills that they needed to be successful. And both groups said no. And one of the sets of questions was around research skills. And all those questions are about the things I teach. And the answers to those questions were pretty uniformly like things like, do you know how to find the information you need? And the answer was, no, I don't think I do. So there's lots of evidence to show that the guest lecturer is and, just not a good idea. Yeah. And one of the things also I just want to add to this, like when I was, you know, one of the things I've learned from working with Martha on this reacting project is she knows more than I do about a lot of this. Mm. And a lot of things that I do um, to teach students, I've realized, oh, actually, that doesn't really work very well. I should really do that. Yeah, Martha's way of doing it is going to be better than mine because she's a specialist. That's what she does. So also, I think for faculty, you know, pay attention because your librarian's probably really smart and knows all kinds of cool stuff that you've never heard of. So um, I think that, that just learning that, oh, there's other ways to go about this. And I think um, uh, one of the things, the mistakes that I think I make is a thinking that I can just sort of gesture at something and say, oh, go do this, and that they'll know what I'm talking about, but they don't. So I need to break it down into much smaller pieces, walk the students through it, demonstrate it, and all the things that Martha's doing with them actually work better. So at the end of the course, they're actually coming out with a skill set that's worth something. And I think a lot of what I had done in the past maybe worked 20 years ago, but it doesn't work now. And I, I think this... Well, that's all. Those are... Sorry, Kelly. I think there must be... Go ahead, is Martha. there a bit... No, is there a bit of a lag on the line with this? Because it reminds me of... I uh, think there working, must be, yes. Yeah, because it reminds me of working in the Arctic. So we had like a... We had a phone system <laughs> where there was always a delay. And it took me the five years I was working there to learn how to listen better and wait before I spoke. Mm. Um, anyway, I, I want to say too that this, 
online world, because Carleton has had to pivot as so many institutions have to at least for the next year being for in the, in the arts and social sciences, I think basically an online uh, learning institution. And while I know the reacting community has been doing a lot of work to figure out what that means for reacting, because uh, it is so powerful face to face. But I think in general for librarians, this pivot is a boon because I think that a lot of what we teach would benefit from an asynchronous component in the curriculum first, where students are have an opportunity to kind of do a, some learning on their own and some reflecting. And then when they are with the librarian in the classroom, then the um, then the interaction, if it has to be, if the synchronous piece has to be limited to, let's say, two or three hours, then it is, it's going to be more effective because there's this module, this asynchronous component that students can engage with first and then afterwards. And in fact, um, I now have what is, what is virtually a 13-week course in terms of the number of modules I have. Uh, where each one is based on a key learning outcome that has, you know, come out of my, you know, work with faculty members and understanding particularly of what first and second year students are having to learn. And I think that by taking these, some of these modules, fitting them in, scaffolding them uh, in a smart way um, in the online curriculum, and then, for example, having a synchronous meeting, and of course, scale does matter, but having a synchronous meeting then with students, I think that this model is actually moves librarians away from that one-shot model, which is what it's typically called, hmm. to really an approach to teaching, to learning, to student learning that is a lot more powerful and could be a lot more effective. So we're just about out of time. So two quick concluding questions. Um, the first is to either one of you. Um, and that is, if people are intrigued by this idea uh, and want to learn more, how can they reach out to you and ask questions? Well, people can be free. feel free to email me at my university email address at Carleton University. That's um, You can just find that on the Carleton University website, and I'm happy to talk to people or um, post something on the Facebook lounge in uh, the, the reacting Facebook lounge, which I read regularly. And I, and, uh, and I'm always so grateful for the incredible people who are part of this community who just write such smart things on there all the time and are helping each other. So I've gotten lots of help from that and um, I'm happy to continue doing that. Ditto. Um, my, you know, I, I can be found on the Carleton University Library website, and um, I'm happy if people reach out to me as well. Although ultimately they'll be they'll be talking with Pamela and myself because it's definitely a partnership, and uh, so mm -hmm. you know we're we're both and we're eager to actually form partnerships because nobody works well in a vacuum, right? So you know we may 
have initiated this idea of a partnership and, and the idea of having a librarian role in a reacting game. However, we just know that if it's going to survive and thrive, it's going to be because other people in the community take it and run with it and make it even better. Yeah, and also just as I'm thinking of, you know, all the great people, also just acknowledging and thanking Mary Jane Tracy for kind of welcoming, mm. welcoming us into her game, because I think when she first heard about it, she's like, they're doing what? And then <laughs> she she came to our session last year at the Barnard Conference, and um, we had a chance to actually meet her, which we hadn't before. So uh, it's such a, her, you know, her game, as you know, Kelly, because you interviewed mm. her, her game is so great and so smart and so creative. So we are very happy that like our little creative moment was adding to something that's already so wonderful. Absolutely. So I would encourage people, I would encourage people to reach out to Martha and Pamela. And, and the last question briefly is to Pamela. Uh, I know you're writing a game yourself. What's the elevator speech version of your game? <laughs> well, the elevator speech version would be, I'm thinking about biggest question is what is a quality? And then going down one level, if if women are participating in the state through voting, how should that happen? And what does it mean to recognize the divisions about between women, which in Britain is often about divisions about class, about mm -hmm. political ideologies? Um, in some cases, it's also about being a colonial subject in the British Empire. And how do those play out in the terms of suffrage? And how can we think about the way that that operates in organizing women in any other context? So that's kind of the biggest meta-level set of questions. Um, and then I'm playing, a, I'm trying to write a game. Um, and it's really hard to write a game. As you know, <laughs> it's really hard. Um, but I'm trying to think about how to ask big women, big, interesting women's history questions uh, and using the women's suffrage movement in Britain as a vehicle to do that. And of course, that's the Pankhursts, who many people are familiar with. And there are all these great moments where you know, they're chaining themselves to the fence at the House of Commons. Um, they're heaving things at the prime minister's carriage as he goes by. And women are trying to organize barmaids. There's this wonderful moment where they're organizing British barmaids. And so it brings in the labor movement. It brings in um, the problem of the colonies and what is the role of colonial women in the context of suffrage. So those are all my big questions. And luckily, the suffrage movement created fabulous characters and primary sources. There's just wonderful things these women wrote and photographs and other things. So I'm trying to figure out how to all create that into something that can be played as a game. Well, I can't wait to get a chance to play it, whether that's at a GDC or at Barnard, whenever we get back together or virtually. Um, but, but Martha and Pamela, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking to Martha Attridge Bufton uh, and Pamela Walker. They are uh, librarians and, and, and professors of history uh, at Carleton in Canada, and they are the winners of the 2019 Brilliancy Prize. And next week on the podcast, we'll be talking with Terry Nelson, this year's winner. So Martha and Pamela, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having All me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.